morning, everybody. Um, scripture today is Matthew 16, 1 through 20. The Pharisees and Sadducees came up, and testing Jesus, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. But he replied to them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, there will be a storm today, for the sky is red and threatening. Do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky, but cannot discern the signs of the times? An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and a sign will not be given it, except the sign of Jonah. And he left them and went away. And the disciples came to the other side of the sea, but they had forgotten to bring any bread. And Jesus said to them, Watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They began to discuss this among themselves, saying, He said that because we did not bring any bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, You men of little faith, why do you discuss among yourselves that you have no bread? Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves of the five thousand, and how many baskets full you picked up? Or the seven loaves of the four thousand, and how many large baskets full you picked up? How is it that you do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread? But beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not say to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking the disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, but still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you find on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Then he warned the disciples that they should not that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. Thank you very much. All right. Good morning. Everybody good? Yeah. All right. Now, I'm gonna start with this. <clears throat> this morning we had um, we had someone else come and speak. They they had to um, they, they well she she spoke alongside of. Uh, um, the homeless, healthy, homeless uh, people this morning, which is incredible, incredible ministry. Um, and uh, and she told the story, and I tried to get to get her to stick around for the second service, but she couldn't do it. Um, and normally you have people get up and tell stories about, I went through this, it's just like we heard, I went through this, and, and I came on the other side, and I have a success story, and this and that. And that's how Christian testimonies tend to go. We have this thing, it's Christian testimony, right? We get up and we say, I was this, and then, and then God did this, and now I'm this. And those are amazing, but this morning we heard something wildly different that is, that is incredibly important to hear. It was a woman um, whose son, probably uh, 17, 18, 19, I don't remember all the details, I'm not going to use any names, um, um, is a drug addict, and he got his girlfriend pregnant, and she invited this girl to come live with her. Um, because she wanted to make sure that this child was going to be okay. And the baby was born, the baby's healthy, and she's taking care of the baby. And then the children, her son and his girlfriend, fell back into drug 
addiction again. And Child Protective Services came and basically told her they can't be around this child, and they gave her full custody of the child. And she's a grown woman. She's she's lived her life. She's raised children, and here she is with this child and with this son, and, and with his son's girlfriend. And, and and she had to kick them out. And she knows they were living on the streets. And she's calling around trying to find a place for them to go. But she can't do it. And she's the way she's telling the story is gut wrenching. And the just the scared tone of like, where are they going to stay? And eventually got to the point where they're still in this situation now. It got to the point where the daughter had to sell herself to find money so they could have a place to stay. Um, and they're in the middle of this. And they are not, sadly, even unique. This is a normal thing happening. And she's calling and she's desperate. And she's telling us how, like, you know, you see these people on the streets and you assume, oh, they made a whole bunch of bad decisions to get themselves there. It's their fault. And, and their parents did a terrible job raising them. And, it, it, and, and, and we throw a lot of blame on the parents. And she says, I was a mother, a, a soccer mom with a minivan, driving my son around to soccer games and having Christmas, going on family vacation. And here we are. Every one of these people is a mother and father. <clears throat> Every one of them is a child of God. They're our brother and our sister. And they are afflicted by decisions they have made in ways that you have never felt and I have never felt. And there is not a place for them to go. There's not places that will necessarily help them in the state that they are in. Um, they are our brothers and sisters in the church should be that place. They have a seat at the table. And the church at large has not been offering to them. Um, her story was incredible. Um, and it directly kind of goes with sort of the idea that we're talking about today. I'm going to start off um, right here in this first verse. Um, this is where we're at in the story. We are at the final sort of home stretch of the teaching of the disciples. This is the last main teaching of um, from this point on, um, actually, if you map all of the book of Matthew, it, uh, it ends right here in this passage at the proclamation that Jesus is the Messiah. It is the very dead center of the entire passage, and it climaxes here. And from this point on, it sort of heads downwards towards the crucifixion of Jesus. From here on out, things get really, really bad, and we start heading into the darkness, sort of the, the dark time that Jesus is going through. Um, this is an important conversation. Uh, it is a life-changing conversation. And the way things happen, the way Matthew describes this, is fascinating. Let's pay attention to it. It starts off right here, verse 1. The Pharisees and the Sadducees came to Jesus, and they tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. Now, the Pharisees and the Sadducees hated each other. Always. They fought like crazy. They were the Republicans and the Democrats. They hated each other. They thought they were, that the other side was the cause and the problem of everything in the world. Um, the Pharisees um, believed in the resurrection of the dead. The Sadducees did not. The Pharisees did not believe in government intervention. Uh, they did not believe that they should be attaining any office or working with these earthly governments because they are earthly governments and they are all going to fall in the face of the kingdom of God. The Sadducees said, well, we're going to get some power and, and we're going to use the government 
to, to give ourselves the benefits that we need and to give ourselves the safety and security that we need as the Jewish people and our freedom of religion. And so they're both coming at this thing from different angles, and they both are wildly in disagreement about everything. The Pharisees um, follow the teachings of the scribes, um, the extra laws, the way that they, you would take biblical law and you would build a fence around it above the law so you never broke that law. And so they followed the, the writings of the, of the Pharisees, of the, of, the, of the scribes and the rabbis. And the Sadducees rejected all that and they were like, we're just going to follow the Bible and nothing else. And so there's, they're like fighting like cats and dogs. Opposite sides. However, Jesus comes onto the scene and Jesus goes and gathers up all of the people that they have rejected that they had denied seats at the table. He's going down to the, the shoreline where these guys are fishing. He's saying, hey, I want you to be my disciples. And the reason they're fishing is because they had failed at being disciples. They had failed at being disciples of their rabbi because all Jewish boys up to a certain age are following a rabbi at about the age of 11 or 12. The rabbi says, you were just not good at this. Go learn your parents' trade. And so they're fishing. And then Jesus goes over to Matthew, tax collector, the writer of this book. And he take, goes to Matthew, um, who has turned his back on his own people and is now profiteering off the Roman government's and taking part in the oppression of his own people, and walks up to him and says, you're perfect, come with me. You're going to be one of my disciples. And then he goes with Simon the Zealot, um, who is one of those, he's sort of like an insurgent terrorist, um, uh, a Jewish kind of kid, who would, who would spend time in the public square assassinating, like this is what they did, they carried long daggers, and they would assassinate Roman centurions and slip into the crowd. Um, Jesus chose the lowest of the low, and said, you all are going to be my disciples, and we are going to do something different. None of these people were good enough to make it um, in the world of the Pharisee, in the world of the Sadducee, in the world of, of sort of rabbinic Tanaitic literature. None. None of them were good enough. And so we come here, and the Pharisees and the Sadducees came to Jesus because Jesus is a threat to them. Jesus with his little ragtag band of, of misfits. Um, and they tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. Now, if you look at the Greek here, what is going on here, the, the description of what's going on, this is really them coming to him and saying, uh, it has like an overtone of an undertone, really, of, of, of astrology. Okay, um, astrology was huge in the time of Christ um, and a long time before that because it was very hot at night. Maybe you felt that before. You can relate. It's very hot at night, and so at night, instead of being cramped up in their little houses, um, they go out on the roof of their houses and they lay on the on the, on the sort of the, the flat area and stare at the stars. Um, and it's just this big show. There's no light pollution because. There's no light. And it, you can see everything. And so over the centuries and over the generations, they had developed all these ideas of what this, how to read the stars, what it means, and all the planets are different representations of different gods, and they're all doing battle, and people are changing places and moving around. And, th and they're using the stars to determine, here is what's going on in the universe, and here's what that means for us. Now, astrology was for, forbidden in the Old Testament, something you're not allowed to do. These Sadducees and the Pharisees are coming to Jesus trying to chop him. Saying, hey, do me a favor, can you read the stars for us to give us a sign from God? Um, they know it's forbidden. And they're hoping Jesus will say, there's my star right there. See, there were likely um, all kinds of stories going around about Jesus. Because remember at the birth of Christ, what happens? A star appears in the sky. And who sees that star and interprets it as, oh, God wants us to go to Bethlehem. The Magi. The Magi are these Median Persian priests. All right? Um, they are pagans. They're not Jewish people. They are actively taking part in astrology. And while they're out there at night debating theology, reading the stars and what's going on with the gods, a new star appears and apparently God speaks to them and says, follow that star. And he's using their faith and their religion to bring people to Jesus. 
It's incredible. And they follow this star and they come and they find Christ. And they worship Him. And so we have these Pharisees. They come in and they're like, hey, give us a sign that you're with God. A sign from the stars trying to trap Him. Now, um, this is fascinating to me. Because Matthew is always, always emphasizing the faith of the outsiders. The faith of those who have no education. The faith of those and the understanding of God of those who are the rejects. And he is always saying, these pagans that you thought didn't belong in your crew, um, those are the people I'm actually going to choose to come. And, and now, every year when the people set up their nativities in the suburbs, they're going to be the ones who focus. Right? Like, every year. Because God is always choosing the outcasts um, and the pagans and using these people. And he brings them in. And he says, you need to see these people. You need to see God calling people that are not like you. You need them to come in and sit at your table because you need to have a conversation with them. Normally, the normal posture is they're going to come in and you're going to say, I'm glad you finally came to your senses and are now more like me with my ideas. Now, let me teach you all the ways of Jesus. But really what Jesus would like you to do is sit down and shut up and listen to some people who have been through some stuff. Because God has called them out of difficult things, heavy things. They've been on a journey that you can't imagine. And he wants you to sit and he actually wants you to wash their, their feet. He wants you to kneel before them and wash their feet and let them speak truth to you about how they understood Jesus. Because here's what Jesus has to say in response to these people. He says, it says, he replied, when evening comes, you say, it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, today it will be stormy for the sky is red and overcast. And you know how to interpret the appearance of the sky. But you cannot interpret the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation looks for a sign, but none will be given Except the sign of Jonah. Jesus then left them and went away. He says, you guys think you can interpret everything. You think you, think you understand exactly what God is doing. You think you understand exactly how God works. And you've come here to push back on me. The actual physical manifestation and incarnation of God in the flesh. And you can't even see it. All these things that you can see, yet you are blind. Yet some Persian magi in the middle of nowhere, some pagan priests, see me and instantly recognize that I am the symbol of the divine. You recognize nothing. There's a lot of people who in general are not self-aware. They're not. They don't, they don't see things that God is telling them. They don't see things that the simplest, simplest mind sees and says, well, obviously this is the path of God. And they've got all these theologies built up to free them of all the responsibilities that they're really supposed to be doing. And they say, well, it doesn't really mean this, it doesn't really mean this, it doesn't really mean this. And the, the other person who's uneducated and only, who only knows God's love and, and they have faith in Christ. And they say, well, Jesus obviously wants us to do this. And they're like, no, well, not so fast, not so fast. Well, he was pretty clear about this. Well, I can explain that away. I think we should be doing this. And Jesus literally told us not to do that. And so there's always this back and forth in the book of Matthew between those who are the lowly and those who are the spiritual leaders. And the lowly are like, we, we see clearly who Jesus is. Oftentimes, the thing you will learn from the lowly is the thing that you will never learn from, from the higher up. This is one of the things that Jesus does. My wife came in not too long ago in my office and said, look what I found. And she was holding a nativity, like small metal nativity of baby Jesus. And she says, I found this in the pantry, like next to the microwave. There's like a little corner there. And... Uh, it was this, and it was a stack of cards. And first off, I'm like, that's what that is. I was wondering, because you have like an activity. 
Oh, Jesus. <laughs> I put a little TV there. Netflix. Um, like a kidnapping. There was no Jesus. But, but there it is. She found it. It's in the pantry, and there's a bunch of cards there. And on one side of the card, there's like these drawings. And one of them is like this, this face with like tears running down the face. And next to it, there's a person, like a stick figure. She's like, no, you stick figure. <laughs> and, and there are these yelling lines coming out of the, the mouth of the other stick figure at the mouth of the face that is crying. And then you flip it over and it says, yelled at brother in terrible line, terrible like fonts, right? But she can't draw them, she, she said. Um, and then you go to the next card and it's like, um, it, it, it says other things like hit brother and there's a drawing of that. And there's another one that says like kicked dog. Um, so she kicked the dog. Um, and I said, what is this? She's like, these are confessions. She had been writing on 3 by 5 cards and drawing, illustrating. <laughs> going into the pantry where she had a hidden white shrine <laughs> by baby Jesus. She's <laughs> under baby Jesus. Yeah, I know, right? Like, <laughs> oh, it's hard to tell a story. And I, so I was raised with all boys. Like, we didn't have emotions. <laughs> I've never seen, I've never seen like thoughtful, intense anything growing up. So it's this little girl, she's seven years old. And she goes into the pantry with a little baby Jesus, and she's writing confessions and putting them under the baby Jesus. I asked her about it, and I said, What is this? She's like, Oh, those are things I don't want to do anymore. I'm trying to become better. You're seven years old, you're trying to become a better person. And. Second, like you're Catholic? <laughs> so, <laughs> the things I learned from a little girl. Like she single-handedly like just changed my ideas of, of everything. Like solidified my ideas like, yeah, 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 why don't you be preaching? Because every single day she's got words for me. Like, like yes. Like, this is what's going on. There's always this group of people that are like, don't listen to them, listen to me. I've got it figured out. I've studied this thing. Christians don't need to be over here doing this. They just need to be debating theology and escapism. The world is burning it's because of them, it's because of their sin. Get them out of here. The Gospel of Matthew is wildly different. It is highlighting the lowest of the low and the things that they see in Jesus. That the rest of us are incapable of seeing most of the time. Now, there are two ways to knowledge. One of the ways to knowledge is um, studying, obviously. Uh, trying to learn. Uh, discipline. Trying to get things. Um, another way to knowledge, oftentimes, and oftentimes it's the most effective way to knowledge, is, is by suffering. By going through things. That is why it is so important to have a community that contains people who have suffered, who have gone, gone through intensely difficult things, and who have a special seat at the table of, of speaking to those who have not, and helping you understand how to help people. Okay? These Pharisees had never suffered. They had never been through anything, and they could not see the presence of God in their midst. Everyone else in the story had. Let's go to the very next passage here. Um, when they went back across the lake, uh, when they went across the lake, the disciples forgot to take bread. 
Be careful, Jesus said to them. Be on your guard against the yeast of the, of the Pharisees and Sadducees. They discussed this amongst themselves and said, it was because they didn't bring any bread. So, there's apparently Jesus is in the boat. I picture him in the front, looking forward. Let us the guys in the back. There's apparently a conversation going on between two of them in the back. One of them's like, bread. I forgot the bread. What? I forgot the bread. What are we going to eat? That's why I'm telling you I forgot the bread. You guys are going to And then Jesus says, turned around all, all rabbi-like, and says, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees. And they're like, shoot, he knows. <laughs> um, because here's the thing. They're going into Gentile territory. You can't eat Gentile bread. Because it's Gentiles have been touching it. We already do this, right? Um, we talked about this. Um, and so they're like, well, maybe, maybe we can get some ingredients and we can make some bread. But then Jesus, you know, maybe we can get, like, the ingredients from, like, the Pharisees who are there. And then Jesus is all like, well, don't use the yeast of the Pharisees. And they're like, oh, shoot, we can't use the yeast. How are we going to make bread? How is this going to happen? Now, they are so consumed with this bread thing that they think Jesus is also, like them, talking about making bread. But he's not. Um, it's a great, like, student-teacher thing. If you've taught people, you've understood this. I've had people come up and say stuff, and I'm like, how long have you been here? Have you heard a word that I said? Any of it? Just give me a sign that you've heard something. Okay, now, this is Jesus right now. Here we go. Um, aware of their discussion, Jesus said, you of little faith, why are you talking amongst yourselves about having no bread? Do you still not understand? Don't you remember the five loaves for the 5,000? How many basketfuls you gathered, or the seven loaves for the four thousand, and how many basketfuls you gathered? How is it that you don't understand that I was not talking to you about bread? Okay, it's like it's a metaphor. <laughs> I'm not talking about bread. I'm 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 trying to be rabbinic, and you're making this really hard. Okay, and then he repeats what he said: Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And then they understood that he was talking to them to guard against the yeast, not against the yeast of bread, but against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. They're like, oh, right. Not the bread, no. I get it, though. That's what I thought. Let's talk about that. Now, um, this is a rabbinical way of saying, this is a thing that rabbis would say. They would say, beware of the yeast of so and so's teaching, so and so's teaching, so and so's teaching, and so and so's teaching. Um, and then they would say things like this. Um, Yeast, basically, it's the powder, it's like, it's like a microbe you put in the bread and it causes it to rise and grow on a chef and all that stuff. But um, it works its way through all of the bread and causes it all to rise. It, it, it interacts with all of it. No matter how much dough you have, it will cause all of it to rise eventually, given enough time to work, as you need it through. Jesus says, what is contained in the hearts and the teachings of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, if you get that in you, and you begin to think that way, this religious way, this way of seeking power, this way of trying to sway everything, um, this way of of, demand, of making religious demands of all kinds of people to be for them to be accepted into your community. Um, if that gets into your life, it will spread. It will take over every aspect of your life. If consumerism, for instance, gets into the lives of the average Christian, eventually it will work its way into the church. And eventually, churches will become massive structures of marketing. And they will lose actual focus on what Jesus was doing as they market to the people who have money, 
and power, and they say, there's an up-and-coming neighborhood. Let's plant a church there. And that's what the church will become. Why? Because that piece of consumerism will enter into the church and spread through the whole thing and tint how we look at everything. Okay? If some religious leader decides, I don't really want to take part in social justice anymore, and we can easily twist up our theology to free ourselves of that responsibility, which is exactly what the Pharisees and Sadducees did, by the way. Which is one of the reasons they rejected Jesus. For going around picking up the lowest of the low and training them to be his disciples. This will spread throughout all of Christianity, throughout the entire mindset of a disciple, until they are walking around rejecting people because they are homeless, because they don't want to be around them, they don't want to live around them, because they affect the values of our homes. It is a cancer. So like when Jesus is talking about leaven that spreads through the whole thing, today you might say, what they have is a cancer. And it is spreading and it is changing how they see everything. You have to see it. You have to reject it. But not only a cancer, it's some kind of virus because it will spread to all of us. And so this is a, a firm word that Jesus has for them. And then Jesus takes them out of Jewish territory, where the Jews and Gentiles are, and he specifically points the boat towards a pagan place. You come to the next area, it's called Caesarea Philippi. Jesus takes them to a place called Caesarea Philippi. Out of the Jewish territory, controlled by the religious, well-educated, very powerful elite, puts them in a boat, takes them to Caesarea Philippi. This, this city was built in the year uh, 2 BC. Um, it is relatively new. Uh, is built by Herod Antipas, whom we've already met, who killed John the Baptist. His brother, Herod Philip. Um, and this was a relatively rich city, but it was also a center of pagan worship. So he takes them from Israel-controlled territory to pagan-controlled territory. Now, where they went specifically was here. Um, they were somewhere within 100 feet of this cave. When they were standing there. I want to put this sort of in perspective for you. We know exactly where this conversation happened. Um, we know why it happened. We know what exactly they were talking about. Um, Jesus is being very specific in this passage. So, let me tell you about this place. Um, this location in the Old Testament was the center of Baal worship. Where you would sacrifice children. Uh, we're going to get into the, the idea of, of worshiping Baal in, in a little bit here. First, I'm going to talk about what it became in the time of Christ. It became the place where you would worship the god Pan. Um, you had the feet of like a deer, like like here down, like like a, like a minotaur, but like a deer. There's a word for it, I'm sure. Oh, well, that's my son. Um, um, and, and he had a flute. And you're like, right now, you're like, how would his son know that? Ask him, um, he, he had this, this flute thing that he would play. It's this god Pan. They would worship the god Pan. The god Pan was like this fertility god. Um, and there's these little niches all over this place. You see one there, one there, one there. There's about five of them here. Here's a close-up one. There would be an idol of Pan sitting right here. And the people would come and you know, burn little candles and lanterns and lay flowers at the god Pan, at the feet of the god Pan. Now, the god Pan was, again, the fertility god. Um, and in other words, it's the god that brings rain. Okay? You're like, well, that's weird. Well, rain was a symbol of fertility, like it would fall, and they believed it, it was some sort of like seeds from heaven, and it would, it would grow crops, okay? So the people that came here to worship Pan, 
um, were desperate people. They needed rain to fall. So when the worship of Pan is happening, um, the people are going through a hard time and they're terrified, they're a bit scared, and they don't know where their next meal, maybe meal is going to come from, and they're worried about the future because people literally starved when it did not rain. Okay, they didn't have refrigerators and all these kinds of storehouses the way that we do today. The very rich did, the average person did not. Here is what the area looked like in the time of Christ. That's where we were just looking at. There's that with the little um, niches. There's the cave over there. Now, this cave, in this day, in the first century, had a spring of water flowing out of the cave. And they built this temple over it, so it would flow sort of up against and, and part of it likely through part of the temple. And they went around the back. Today, that water flows from around here somewhere and flows out because in the year 1837, there was a large earthquake and it collapsed the cave. So the spring was blocked off, and the water seeped up through the ground right over here, and now it flows. And if you go there today, that's where the water comes out. But we know the water flows from there until 1837. Now, um, so the people, Jesus is here with his disciples. This entire rock wall, with all of these altars and all these gods, this is where people come when they're looking for answers. When they need food, when they need water, when, when they need to call out to the gods for healing of some kind, um, when they need their livestock to reproduce, when they themselves need to reproduce, and they're terrified and they don't have any answers. They come here and they worship the god Pan sitting right there. And how do you worship the fertility god? Well, you, you perform, generally, in general, you're going to perform sex acts in front of the god to try to arouse the god into making it rain. Jesus brings his disciples here. This is where they're standing. All of this is going on. This wall right here of rock that is still there today, they called it the Rock of the Gods. Okay? Over here, in this cave, before the time of Jesus, um, that's where Baal was worshipped. For generations upon generations, Baal was worshipped there. In the Old Testament, um, when you see the people build the second golden calf, and they put it up on top of it, it was sitting right there where that temple is, right in front of that cave. There's still some steps there today that you can climb and see where the golden calf was that they have. Now, um, certain times of the year, the water would flow more so out of that cave. In the winter, it would kind of die down into a trickle and a light, light stream. In the spring, it would flow out of there. So they developed this theology. If there's water coming out of here, by the way, that water turned into the Jordan River, which fed the entire area. And if there's water coming from this area, and that water is what has made life possible for everyone here, there must be a God there who is providing water for everyone. They called that God Baal, or Baal. Um, Baal's home was in Hades. Sometimes it's translated as hell. I don't know what translation you've read today. It's going to say the gates of hell or the gates of Hades. Um, during the winter, it was believed, when the river was dead, that Baal was down in Hades. And in the spring, he would come back, and they believed he came right through that cave and brought water for the people. And they would come and sacrifice things and throw stuff on the altar and dance and sing and call out for Baal to make rain. And, and, and it was this huge, huge sacrificial system that was centered around this whole area where Jesus brought the disciples here. That cave, you know what they called it? The gates of hell. It's what they called it. Now, Jesus brings them here. He has this conversation. Because they just came from Israel territory. Where the religious elite... Failed to recognize God in the flesh right in front of them doing God's work. Like, that's not God's work. God's work is like government and power.
power and this kind of stuff and like controlling all the like making the world more moral. That's God. And Jesus is like, couldn't disagree more. And Jesus takes these people and he leaves God's territory. He goes here and he has this conversation. He looks at him and he says, Who do the people think I am? I want to ask you this. Who does everyone think I am? And I'm like, well, some think you are Elijah. Some think you're John the Baptist, risen from the dead. Some, you know, there's like, I mean, you're a prophet some sometime. And then he looks at them and he asks another question. What about you? He asks, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. That is the center of the book of Matthew, that line. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. If you map the entire book of Matthew, that's it. That's the center. That's everything Matthew wants you, Matthew wants you to know. If there's nothing else you get from the entirety of the book of Matthew, is that there's one king, it is Jesus. Messiah is a Jewish word meaning anointed one. Who would you anoint? The king. By saying the anointed one, it's like saying hail to the chief. Right? It means the president. So, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Verse 17, Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, the son of Jonah. For this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock... I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And here we are. The rock of the gods, the gates of hell, and Jesus is talking to them. He says, Simon, Peter, by the way, Peter, in the Greek, is a word that means rock, literally means rock. So Jesus' whole thing is like, planned up. Jesus looks at Peter and he says, who do you think I am? Peter says, you're the king. You're the king above every other king. And he says, Peter, that is what my kingdom will be built upon. My church. He says, my, my church will be built upon the proclamation of all my people proclaiming that Jesus is king. Now, now, this is a moment in Christian history that is huge. Um, <coughs> Jesus basically says, the church, the gathering of people that gather in my name. Now, um, rabbis, the word used here for church is the word ecclesia. Um, this is pre-church, really. There was no church yet. But a lot of rabbis set up ecclesial gatherings centered around their teachings. So that when they died and moved on, the people would keep gathering in their names. And we have a lot of those rabbis, we know that where their gatherings were. And they would raise up other disciples to carry on their teachings. Jesus was the most successful rabbi of all time. Jesus' gathering is still existing today. We are a part of that ecclesial gathering. We are the church. Jesus says, my church will be built upon the proclamation that I am king above everyone else. Now, there are lots of churches built upon lots of things. I would argue that in this particular country and day and age, the predominant idea is not that Jesus is king. That Most churches are not built upon the idea that Jesus is king and there is no other king. Most of it is built upon... Um, I'm in a situation I need to get out of. Right? That problem pales in comparison to the problem that most of us don't recognize Jesus as king. And Jesus says, in all of this, in all the things that people are doing, I brought you out of a place where these people had screwed up the message of God, and I bring you over here where these people are desperate for the message of God. If you come to these places and you, you, you present the idea... That there is another king far and above all these other things. And if we live in this way, we will be part of a, a citizenship of that kingdom which will spread worldwide and will, be, will, will grow and will bring life-changing um, 
life-changing salvation and healing to all people in this world. And, and Jesus is looking at him. He's explaining all this. Now, here's the thing. The church cannot be built on the backs of people who will not declare that Jesus is Lord. Out loud. That Jesus is king and no one else is king. There are silent ch- churches, silent Christians, silent pastors, silent leaders, afraid to announce what exactly the way of Christ entails. You can build these gatherings of people based on these pithy, happy, encouraging statements. Um, but you cannot build the body of Christ until you are willing, uh, in the middle of multiple tribes coming against you, to stand, in it, to stand firm and say, there is no king but Jesus. He loves the people that you hate. He has accepted all those whom you have rejected. He really does believe that the lives of the racial minority matters, that the lives of the sexual minority does matter. He stands with the oppressed and embraces all those whom you shun. He is king, so stand and do your worst. This is why the early Christians were persecuted. They refused to take part in the proclamations that there were other kings in this world. And they were rounded up and they were killed uh, because of it. You see, when Jesus is standing here and he says, the gates of hell are not going to prevail against it. This is war language. When you, would, when you would talk about a war and people are coming at you and you say, our gates will prevail. They will hold these people out. What Jesus is saying here is, when the kingdom of God charges into these places... Everything that they have will crumble in comparison to what Jesus is offering them. And it's this huge idea. No earthly kingdom will be able to stand against my kingdom. Their armies are no match for our love. Their ideas are no match for our desire to welcome them and sit with them and and offer mercy and grace to them. Um, Their ideas will fail when compared with our sacrificial service. Their threats will fail when we bring our healing to their land. Their people will abandon their old ways in droves when they see the good news that Jesus is actually offering them. And so all these kingdoms of the world warring against Christianity have always failed. Every time Christianity is persecuted, it always grows more and more and more. Why? Because the love of Christ exercised through the body of Christ, the hands and feet of Jesus, bringing healing and a seat at the table for all those who have been rejected, always causes people on the other side to rethink what they are doing because they know it is wrong. And they see the love of the people of God. And they desire it. And if the people aren't desiring it, it's because they're not seeing the love of the people of God. I want to invite you to take part in, in what we are doing with this until all know home. It's a simple little step. It is how we become the hands and feet of Christ. It is, it is one of the simple ways that we declare Jesus is Lord. We create space at the table for everyone. The rejected, the outcast. Because there are mothers right now everywhere thinking of their sons and daughters who are living on the streets. And what they need is to know that there's a body of people in this city reaching out to them and looking out for them. We should be able to write letters to mothers and say, we're watching out for your son. I know you're terrified. We will be in the presence of Jesus in their life. We will be here for them. We need to take communion. Uh, communion is a divine mystery. If you are a food server, you're going to take the elements and spread around there. Communion is this divine mystery, okay? It's something that must be incarnated. It is something that you have to practice regularly. It is, um, it is the body of Christ broken for you. It is the blood of Christ spilled for you. Um, it is the symbol of what Christianity is about. And every single time we get together, we take this. Um, it is a reminder that no matter who you are, no matter where you're from, no matter the things you've done, no matter the things you're involved in right now, remember the body of Christ is broken for you, the blood of Christ is filled out for you so you can find healing and restoration and reconciliation. You have to seize the table with us. 
Um, the blood, body of Christ is broken for you, the blood of Christ is spilled for you. And so we pause every week and we take a piece of bread and we dip it in the glass and we eat it. And we ask that God, that God would take his love and his gospel, his, his broken body and his poured out blood for us. It, it's, it's metaphor, it's symbolic, it's incredibly powerful, it's beautiful, it's an exercise. And it is a reminder that as the body of Christ, this is also how we live. This is just one of the ways that we show people who we are. Okay, so our community service can come forward. Um, we're going to take some time. We're going to take communion. I'll give you some some time to uh, exercise some silence and thoughtful prayer. Um, if you need to spend time in repentance, do it. If you need to confess something to a brother or sister, do it. There's a prayer room in the back here on the left. Somebody would be there and they would love to pray with you. Um, ponder what it means to be a part of the body of Christ. For your body to be broken and, and, and the blood of Christ to be poured out for these people around you. You are the presence of God there. Let's pray. Father. Thank you for this place and these people. Thank you um, that you have called us into the service of your church. I ask that uh, that your church, first off, I ask that this church would become fully your church, that the people here would be fully understanding and embracing the idea that you are our king. I ask that you would... Um, Fill our community with, uh, with people who have been through things that we need to hear about. People who have seen you in dark places. People who will open our eyes to what exactly you are doing around us. Help us to humble ourselves when they come in. Help us to wash their feet. To look at them as our teachers and our brothers and sisters. Um, change us. Mold us, shape us. Remind us that if your church is going to be planted, it's because we are proclaiming you. Thank you, Father. Give us now.